I saw that video a couple of months ago and thought, now that's a discussion starter right there. I mean, is that God cutting down that tree? And if so, does he need to be on Weight Watchers? Is that snow? Is it water? Is it, you know, what all's going on there? I mean, there's just so many questions that went through my mind, but I thought, wow, what a great visual. What a way to start conversation about the resurrection. And um, there was conversation happening about the resurrection in the book of Acts. We're going to start there and then find our way into the book of Mark. We're finishing up the book of Mark tonight. Uh, we've been on this trek through Mark for, I don't know, I think for about 25 years now, and we're almost done. And uh, boy, tonight is the night. And for those of you who are still rather traditionalist at heart and going, man, I don't know if I was really, am I really celebrating Easter? I mean, it's not Sunday yet. Okay, here's the deal. The truth is the Jewish faith sees the day starting at the point that sun sets, right? So for you guys who stick around for the glow in the dark Easter egg hunt, you are here on Easter Sunday, all right. So it's uh, there you go. You're, you're you're taken care of. Now, there, there's a lot of conversations that could have been had about that particular video. And there are a lot of conversations that we can have with each other to find out what we think and what we believe about Jesus, about the gospel, about the church, about the resurrection, about Beliefs in general. And where do we find those beliefs? We find them in, uh, you know, Jay Leno's Man on the Street, which is both funny and sad to me. Uh, we've also got those conversations happening where in in uh, in 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 work rooms at lunch uh, in in hallways uh, in in conversations on Facebook in threads. Uh, I, I saw this one thread this week and uh, real life thread right here uh, uh, contemplating deeper issues of life. Sarah says, "Don't tell me the sky is the limit when there has never been footprints on the moon." Blake answers, "Actually, there are." Sarah. Uh, Sarah answers, haha, that's not the point. They are probably gone by now. Uh, Carrie chimes in, actually, they would still be there because there's no water to wash them away and no wind to blow them away. And unless the moon's housekeeper has been sweeping, they're probably still there. I mean, deep thoughts occur on Facebook, right? Deep conversations and deeper conversations than that were happening in the book of Acts. Chapter 17, we find Paul is in Athens and he's waiting on Silas and Timothy to show up. They've been helping the church get started in Berea and uh, and he begins to strike up conversations. Now, he didn't have that video to introduce the conversation, but he's just striking up conversations and he's having conversations in the synagogue and he's having conversations in the marketplace and he's just all over the place. As a matter of fact, we're going to pick up here in verse 16. So he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo intellectual trying to say? And others replied, he seems to be preaching of foreign deities because he was telling hear this. He was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul has been walking around the city, and if you unpack this chapter a little more, what you discover is he is deeply disturbed by what he's 
seeing. He sees a lot of worship happening, actually. He sees a lot of people fully devoted and zealous and dedicated and ritualistic and, and, and worshipful. The problem was they weren't worshiping the one true God. They did not know the reality of Jesus. And in many respects, I believe that we are the 21st century Athens. Everywhere we look, worship is happening. It's happening with where our worship for money and our worship for stuff and our worship for uh, in religion and our worship of rituals. Our worship of ourselves. We are uh, we we are a 21st century filled with examples of worship. And Paul was interested in this moment in introducing them to the only one truly worthy of worship. In verses 17 and 18, we find a couple of people groups here. We find the Epicureans. The Epicureans, an interesting bunch. Uh, these people followed Epicurus who had lived from 30, 30, 341 B.C. to 270 B.C. And, uh, and, and, and said, he said basically the chief end of man was pleasure and happiness. Pleasure and happiness. They believe that if gods exist, they do not become really involved in human events. And these people were listening to Paul as he spoke about Jesus and the resurrection. And we also had these stoic, uh, these stoics mentioned in the account. They, on the other hand, had been following a man by the name of Zeno, who lived from 320 B.C. to 250 B.C. And this was this pantheistic view of life where they felt there was this great purpose that was directing them. But where it ended was they were their own gods. It was all about this individualistic. Everyone is on the road for themselves, moving through tragedy, moving through triumph. But really just stay positive And it's all about you. The Jews were in the mix, too, following lots of laws and regulations, but again, missing the relationship with Jesus. Law followers, pleasure seekers, do it all yourselfers. I would say if we went to the mall this evening and walked over to where people are purchasing the last minute stuff for their glow in the dark Easter egg baskets. What they're going to what we'll discover is if we did our own man on the street interview, we would find these people. Matter of fact, I would say we would find these people represented in this room right now. The law follower. I'm going to be as good as I can. I'm going to make God happy. And in the end, surely, surely the fact that I have kept uh, most of the Ten Commandments and really been good, that's going to outweigh the really dumb things that I've done. And surely at some point in God's thought of me, he's going to say, you know what? Randy tried really hard. His heart was his heart, his intentions. They were they were good. He'll be all right. We got the pleasure seeker. Uh, best way I can describe the pleasure seeker is uh, Easter several years ago. Uh, I was holding one of my uh, babies and uh, we, we have five kids and, and I won't name which one this was because then that would incriminate them and then they'd get mad at me. So I'm just going to say it was one of them. And uh, I was holding one of them and we were I was on staff at a church and it was a church where you had to dress up really nice. Right. And so I'm, I'm like, not that not that we don't dress up nice here, but I'm just saying like as I'm sorry, I didn't. Y'all, you know what? Y'all look great. Y'all look great. I mean, I'm in jeans. Come on. Uh, but uh, but so 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 I'm in a suit. I'm talking about staff. I'm, a, I'm in a suit. Right. And I've got a white shirt and I had just I had just bought the suit. It was great. And I'm holding and, and I'm engaged in a conversation in the hallway right outside my office. And I'm just I'm holding my baby. And all of a sudden I feel deeply warmed. 
And I, I, I pull my baby away. And it, it is at, at that point, our, our baby was about four and a half months old. And it is as if every it is if this baby had been saving up for four and a half months. And I, pull, I pulled our baby away. And I, I mean, to the very core of who I was, I was soiled. And then what do you do at that point? It's like, happy Easter, everybody. You know, I mean, what what do you do? You know, what I did, because we had multiple services, I went home and I changed. As a matter of fact, I literally had to take a shower before I put on new clothes. Okay, what does that have to do with the pleasure seeker? Real quick, it's all fine and good whenever we're babies and we have this mindset, because you know what? It's all about what makes me feel good, right? I mean, I'm going to eat Ah, I'm content, right? I'm going to poop. Ah, I'm content. I'm going to go to sleep. Ah, I'm content. It's all about what makes me happy, what makes me feel good. And then we start to grow up. And for part of our culture, the pleasure seeking is still the goal. It is the epitome. It is the chief aim of man. Whatever makes me happy is the most important thing that I should strive for, whatever that may be. And so our capital was filled with people this last week, and our Supreme Court had cases argued in front of it with people saying, this is what makes me happy, therefore we as a country should do this. Now I'm not going all political or one issue on you, I'm just saying that is indicative of who we are as a people. That we go, you know what, it is all really about making me happy. And these people existed in this crowd. Do it all yourselfer. That's the, I'm making life what it is. I figure out my own solutions. I make my own decisions. I'm independent. I do the church thing from time to time. I may even do the church thing every week. But at the end of the day, if you were to peel back my life, what you would find is that the truth is that I do life my way. I am the living and breathing Frank Sinatra. Do it yourselfer. Truthfully, not a lot has changed in the last 2,000 years regarding the philosophies that we adopt that guide us through life. It really hasn't. So Paul preaches the good news of the resurrection to all three of these groups of people, and their responses, I believe, are also going to seem quite similar to us. Today, Acts 17, we'll just jump in right here. He's been he's been speaking to them. And Paul says he being God has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, the man being Jesus. He has appointed he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. And when they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. The first reaction when coming face to face with the resurrection of Jesus, whether it's in the crowd 2000 years ago or maybe even in this room tonight, is one of just not taking it seriously. I mean, really, what is Easter really all about? It's about chocolate bunnies and and malt balls, right? I mean, whoppers, seals everywhere. For some reason, whopper has decided Easter is like their holiday. Uh, I remember being a little kid, and the coolest thing about Easter to me for a couple of years, and this is way before I said yes to Jesus as my Savior, and we were going to church back then, but my parents bought us this big, huge, mongo-sized Easter rabbit. I mean, it was about this tall, and we would jump on that thing and play on that thing, and that was just the coolest thing, and it was all about the stuffed animal. 
And you know what? It wasn't about taking seriously, though, the claims of Jesus Christ and what happened in this moment. These are the people who say, I I don't believe the Bible in spite of there being more copies and ancient manuscripts of it than any other book of antiquity. In spite of the fact that it has a smaller gap time wise between when it was written and the oldest fragments and entire books of the Bible that were written than any of the other ancient writings. In spite of the fact that it is unequaled in its degree of accuracy that is found between all of the copies that have survived. In spite of the fact that uh, that so many of these books were actually written very close to the point at which Jesus died and resurrected. There wasn't a long time gap between what happened in Jesus' life and when these books were written. In spite of all the evidence, some choose not to take the Bible seriously. Or the resurrection, for that matter. I mean, how, how could you believe that, that a man actually rose from the dead? And in spite of the evidence that he, and this, in the spite of the evidence that he was publicly executed, that it was a type of execution that literally they created a word for. Have you ever used the word excruciating? Did you know that that word actually came from the crucifixion experience? It means out of the cross. They had to create a word to describe what was happening in this moment with Jesus. We knew that even before he died, Jesus was suffering from hypovolemic shock resulting in this pericardial effusion where uh, the membrane around the heart would fill with fluid. So that at the point whenever he breathed his last and the spear pierced into his lungs and his heart, both blood and water came forth. The man was dead. In spite of the secured grave, a grave that was guarded and sealed and a death sentence was issued to any guard that allowed anybody to come in and touch the body, remove the body. Anything to mess with the body. In spite of a rolled away stone showcasing an empty tomb and an angelic presence announcing that he is risen. In spite of eyewitnesses who encountered Jesus after he resurrected. I mean, literally, we're talking well over a hundred at one point. From Mary Magdalene to the other women in Matthew chapter 28 to Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus to the 11 disciples and others in Luke 24 to the 10 apostles and others without Thomas and then with Thomas present in John chapter 20 to the seven apostles in John 21 to the disciples in Matthew 28 and the apostles on the Mount of Olives before his ascension. All of these moments in time, Jesus shows up and he's eating and drinking and having a fried fish breakfast on the beach with the disciples. In spite of the fact that the disciples made a 180 degree turn, afraid for their lives and then becoming courageous Christ followers. In spite of the fact that people don't die for what they believe to be a lie. And yet these followers of Jesus were being martyred left and right for what they had experienced. In spite of the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection were predicted by not only him, but by Old Testament writers hundreds of years before. In spite of a movement that has transformed the history of the world, impacting us literally historically by the way we even define time. Millions upon millions upon millions of Christ followers living and dying for Christ, even up to this very moment on this planet. I've got a friend of mine who's training youth workers right now in the country in, 
in, uh, in the country of Egypt and in a, in a Bedouin field in the middle of nowhere. They are training under the cover of darkness youth pastors who are saying the gospel is exploding in Egypt. In spite of the power of changed lives that are in this room and in your family and at your work and in your neighborhood and in the seat next to you. And in spite of the fact that I can say right now that I am a satisfied customer. In spite of all that, there are those who choose to not take the claims of Christ seriously. And who choose not to see the resurrection for what it really is. That Jesus is revealing the reality that he is the son of God. That he really is who he said he was. Acts 17, 32b, there's another reaction. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Okay, these people, these people are on the bus to Windstar. Okay? Because here's what these people are doing. These people are choosing to gamble. They are, plain and simple. I mean... That's what they're doing by saying, oh, let's check this out. We'll talk about this again another day. I, I would say that none of us know what tomorrow holds. I would say that we could leave this room tonight with our family and a texting driver could end all of our family's lives. And we could stand in front of the throne and have to give account for what we believe about Jesus. But at that point, it's too late. The decision has to have already been made. And before you say, oh, wait, I thought all this like fear tactic thing going on about, you know, preachers preaching all this craziness and making people scared and stuff was over. I mean, that was like the 1980s, right? You know what? I believe that the church has done a disservice to scriptures that we don't concentrate on anymore. Like Hebrews 3, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Paul writes, now is the day of salvation. But on that day in Athens, many chose to say no under the verbiage of, I'll just wait. Verse 33, then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him and believed. There were some who chose to believe. And I would say tonight, after listening to this amazing conclusion of the Gospel of Mark that we're about to read together, after hearing this one more time, this amazing story of the risen Lord, there might just be some here who would say, you know what, I believe. And not only do I believe, I place my faith in Him and I give thanks to Him and I celebrate who He is. Why would we do that? Well, Mark 10, 33, 34. Now, I told you we've been walking through the gospel of Mark here at Rock Point. Well, several, several weeks ago, we were in chapter 10. And it says this in 33, the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And he will rise after three days. Remember that passage? This is, this is Jesus speaking about what was to come. You know, when we unpacked this amazing prophecy from Christ himself, wow, how cool it was to then jump into the scripture that we read last week as we watched it become reality. Condemned to death by the Jews and then executed by the Romans, exactly as Jesus described it would be. In chapter four of Acts, verse 27 and 28 
we find a prayer that also reminds us of the execution of Jesus and the reality that it didn't catch God by surprise. It wasn't like God said, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. No, he knew exactly what was happening. As a matter of fact, his will was going to be accomplished and salvation would come to the world and to me, to you, through the perfect sacrifice of his one and only son. Listen to this. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand. They're speaking to God here. Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What are they praying to God? We recognize, God, that this was your plan unfolding to bring your self-glory, to bring salvation to all. God, your fingerprints are all over this plan. In case you missed it, we've been hanging out here on Saturday night looking at how God's fingerprints have been all over this plan, especially during Passion Week. We looked at how the feast of the Passover was being celebrated at the moment, at the time that the perfect Lamb of God is being slain on the cross for us. We looked at how the feast of the unleavened bread, as it begins, there's this sweeping out of leaven. That the, that the, that the lady in the house, the wife, the mother, she begins to put all these piles of leaven all over the place. And then her husband comes through and he begins to sweep it all out, symbolically pushing all of the sin out of their lives. It's in this day, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, on day one, when they are removing the leaven from their homes, Christ's body lies in the grave. And he is lying there, sinless, unleavened, speaking to the Jewish people and to us about his perfect life, the perfect sacrifice. The only way that we could be freed from the bondage of sin, what we could not do on our own. And now we have come to the Israelite people celebrating the feast of the first fruits. It's the third day of the week long feast of unleavened bread. And on this particular day, here's what's happening. They're going out into the fields and they're pulling a sheaf from their from their crop. And not just anyone. They're picking the best that they could find. It's the first crop of the season. And they pull that in. And tradition tells us, the Talmud tells us, that the Jewish people, when the temple was still standing, they would come into the temple and move toward Temple Mount. And the high priest was there. And he would gather all the sheaves together. And then they would, in one accord, sing, bring it in the sheaves. No, they didn't. But they would... I don't know where that came from. They would bring, they, from 1975, they, they would bring all these sheaves together and they, they would be worshiping. I don't think that song was written yet, but they would be worshiping. And the high priest would start waving all of the sheaves in the air, all over the place, in this one act of saying, God, you are sovereign. You are worthy. You are holy. You, we thank. And it's in this moment that we find the feast being celebrated and some very key elements here. Don't miss this. One thing that's happening in this feast is that the Jews are bringing to the temple the very best that they have. They're also presenting this offering of thanks, not only for the for the harvest that they currently have, the first one, but also representative of all the harvests that are to come. They are anticipating what is to come. 
And they're thanking God in advance for it. Don't miss that. We're coming back to it. And third, they're also presenting this offering of these sheaves and they're setting aside this entire offering to be consecrated to God. Their entire offering, all of the crops that would be harvested, consecrated, made holy in this moment with the high priest on the third day. And on this day, the Jewish people were preparing to celebrate this feast. And the resurrection occurs. Let's pick up in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb of, at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? I, I find that a little funny because we don't know exactly when it happens in the journey. I don't know if it's like they just leave their homes and they just are like, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen. Or they actually get all the way to there and they look at it and go, hmm, we should have thought of this. I don't, I don't know. We're going to think the best. I don't even know what that is. But looking up, they observed that the stone which was very large, had been rolled away. Prayers answered. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a long white robe, an angel sitting on the right side. They were amazed and alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been resurrected. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go and tell his disciples. And don't forget to tell Peter, because boy, he screwed up. <laughs> How about that? It's like God's over here with the angels going, hey, okay, who's got that? Ta- okay, you, make sure that you tell them to tell Peter because he, you know, I don't know. I just find that kind of funny. But I'm glad they did because in other gospel narratives, what we discover is Peter is on the scene quickly. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. Ah, another. Ah, backtrack a minute. Remember that? How cool is it as we're bringing all this to culmination? Have you been tracking with us? What did Jesus say? A few weeks ago, we looked at it. He said, this is what a a message of hope. He's like, guys, I'll see on the other side. I'll see in Galilee. They're going, huh? You're talking about being crucified and yet you're going to see us after that in Galilee? The angel confirms it. Yep, he's going to be in Galilee. And you will see him there just as he told you. So they went out. And they started running from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. And Mark ends it right there. And there's a lot of speculation as to why it ended that point. But here's the best thing that we can do is we can culminate all the gospel narratives together. And what we know is that Matthew states that although they were afraid, they were also filled with great joy. And they ended up going to the disciples. But as they were going, Jesus met them. And he encouraged them not to be afraid. And they worshipped him in that moment. And they found their way back to the disciples and announced to them the good news. And indeed it is good news. It's a reason to celebrate. There was no accident here. There is no coincidence that what we just read happened at the Feast of the First Fruits. Because Jesus himself became the First Fruits. Pointing us again to the reality that God's hands were in this from the very beginning. Go all the way back 
to the Jewish people as they were struggling, trying to figure out who they were in the first five books of our Bible. But just as those sheaves were offered as the best that they had, Jesus is offered for us on the cross. The perfect sacrifice. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made the one who did not know sin to be sin. Don't miss it. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. You see, there's a moment here, and I hope you caught it. I hope there was an aha moment that this is not by accident. And just as those sheaves were offered as a way to consecrate not only the current, but the future crops, who is Jesus in this moment? He is the only one who is the purifying solution for us. Step back all the way to my Easter experience when I had to change those clothes. Can I just tell you what happened? I had to throw away two of those shirts. I could not get them clean. They were never the same again. Now, good news. Jesus becomes the perfect purifying solution for us. And what that detergent could not get out for me on those stains, he takes care of all of our stains. Second Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. He made the one who did not know sin. Remember, we just read that to what? To be sin for us so that we might become what? Righteousness of God in him. And finally, just as those sheaves were being waved in that first fruits offering, Jesus, just as they are being waved with great anticipation of the crop that is to come, Jesus himself, in this moment, in resurrected state, produces for us the promise of future resurrection for us. Jesus is the first fruits. He's like, look, it happens. Look at me. This is what we get. We get to be with the Heavenly Father forever. Death does not win. Matter of fact, I'm going to do this with my life so that you can see that it's really, really real. And in this moment, in the Feast of the First Fruits, we jump right in here and go, thank you, God, for sending Jesus to show us that this is not all that there is. That this isn't it. It's 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, who is he? He is the ultimate first fruits afterward at his coming. Those. Who belong to Christ. The late Yale professor of history, Yaroslav Pelikan, I believe rightly encapsulated the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ with this quote. Don't miss its, don't miss its simplicity. Here it comes. He said this. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, Nothing else matters. The most important answer you and I will ever give 
is the answer to the question of what we will do with Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me? Tonight, we can react to the resurrection by choosing not to take it seriously. We can react to the resurrection by choosing to gamble. Or we can react to the resurrection by choosing to believe and to give thanks and to celebrate. And if you choose the third one for the very first time tonight, we would like to visit with you about that. We'd love for you to write that on a card. It could be as simple as, I'd like to talk to somebody about reaction number three. We'd love to visit with you tonight. If you're willing to stick around, there's a glass room out in the hallway. We'll have people there to visit. I'll be down here, down front. We would love to visit with you about choosing to believe. For many of us in the room, we've already made that choice. We did take Him seriously. We did not choose to gamble. And tonight, maybe what you've heard is a reminder from God about who Jesus is to be for us. That He gives us hope. That He does make all things new. That He went before us to show us this is not all that there is. And maybe what you would say is, I came in here with messed up relationships and messed up thinking and messed up feelings and just I just feel really messed up right now and I do believe but I just need God to touch me tonight and with his spirit remind me who Jesus is and that he is the victor and that I can have victory because he lives in me What are you telling God right now? What reaction have you chosen? The perfect sacrifice has come to offer the only purifying solution. And through his resurrection, paved a way for my resurrection. That is good news. You know, we're going to end our worship experience here with a song called Mystery. And I think it's so very perfect. Because for much of the Gospel of Mark, it was a mystery for His disciples, for His detractors. And yet now, on the other side, we look back at the completed Word of God and we see Christ his confession to Caiaphas, I am Christ. I am the Son of God. His death on the cross. His resurrection. We see Him as the Anointed One. The Priest of all priests. The Prophet of all prophets. The King of all kings. The Coming One. He is. Just as God said to Moses at the burning bush, I am. He is. 
God. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. God, He, your Son is indeed the Messiah. And He has risen. And He will come again. 